Hello everyone and welcome fellow piercers and piercing enthusiasts to Real Talk, a piercing podcast from the minds of piercing professionals on the body modification industry and culture. Each episode we will center on a common theme with a guest. We will cover topics including things such as piercing methods, industry topics, jewelry, and trends. I'm your host Will Von Doom, a professional body piercer and proud member of the Association of Professional Piercers. So let's get straight to the point and dive into this week's topic. Welcome back, everyone. In this week's episode, we decided to talk to a jewelry maker that we've had many requests for. That maker is Jared Carnes, and his company is One Tribe. One Tribe is well known throughout the industry for their high quality products and unique designs that are all handmade by a small team in Virginia. Jared sat down with me this past week, and we discussed a plethora of different things. His openness to sharing information really gives us a deeper look into how pieces are born. To say I'm excited about this episode is an understatement, even though I spent a large amount of time mispronouncing materials. So without further ado, listen in as we talk about how an idea moves from concept to reality, the new designs being shown at conference, and how important supporting your community is. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Jared Carnes. I run a little body jewelry company called One Tribe based in Richmond, Virginia. I'm the owner and primary maker now. Um, well, only maker going on 16 years. So you're definitely well known throughout the industry for your, I'm just going to say it, pretty amazing pieces that you produce. <laughs> a lot of piercers you see like wearing them and they're usually the pieces we get the most compliments about. So why don't you tell us how you got started in making jewelry? <laughs> That's a funny story, actually. Um, so when I first started One Tribe, I actually was thing. One Tribe started out just like most of the wholesale companies in the industry um, for the workshop down in Indonesia. So I was doing a lot of um, design work, a lot of solving problems, a lot of traveling back and forth between our uh, office here in Richmond and the workshop in Bali. And I ended up starting to make wood jewelry to troubleshoot some problems that our artisans were having. Um, I wanted to have a full understanding of the best way to go about doing the different techniques using all the various materials that we were interested in working. Um, and there's no better way to do that than hands-on. So I started doing basic wood carving, wood plugs, stuff like that. Um, just solving problems, working through issues with materials, and then going down there and teaching those guys how to do it as well. And to be honest with you, it just kind of snowballed. The whole thing backfired on me. And uh, once I started working stone, I really fell in love with the material, fell in love with the history, and, and really just with the process of making. That's really awesome. Can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing from... I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just describe your class in the industry as a maker. Because uh, you guys take concepts and just make them into realities. And it's so interesting to hear like how passionate you are about the materials you work with. It's it's almost very similar to a lot of, you know, like piercing. We get excited when we get like new jewelry that we can put into new concepts and projects. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's kind of close. But I, I know it's not the same thing. But like it, it gives me an appreciation because – I know how passionate I am about those types of things, and it's just really rad to hear it coming from someone that makes jewelry. So is there any certain materials that you're super fond of working with, or are there any materials that are like the ones that you don't like to work with? <laughs> I know there's probably a laundry list. But... So, so I'll start with the ones that I'm not a very big fan of, mostly just because I spent a good part of my day struggling with some material. So um, there are bunch of colorful, really wonderful material people love that if you ask pretty much anybody, they'll tell you that they're the worst ever to deal with. Um, and that would include Laramar, which I spent 
uh, several hours today breaking a whole really sad photo on my Instagram, if you'd like to see. <laughs> um, Charoite, uh, purple screwy stuff is really popular, and it just just fractures, breaks relentlessly. Um, and both of those materials, it really just comes down to the the physical structure of the material itself. In the case of the Laramar, it's uh, pectolite, and it's it's composed of lots of little sprays of material. It's kind of like uh, saginite or some of the other needle forms of agate where you have what look like little fireworks or little needles, tubes going through the material, but they're not surrounded in the silica that would make up an agate. So the bonds between them are really weak, and they tend to break apart and shear and fracture and it's frustrating because it's really beautiful stuff and it's also very expensive stuff so you know when you're working on something and it just crumbles in your hand two or three times you've not just lost that on time that you can't get back but potentially material as well that's pretty frustrating that's a cost that you generally can't pass on you've got to eat it i can definitely understand that that's i that is one part of your job that I do not envy at all. <laughs> like I, I could not imagine getting through something to like make it and just be at like the final stage and then just have it crumble or snap or like put you back at the start. Like I, I can't even imagine putting together Legos and like missing a piece <laughs> that I have to go three steps back. It happens all the time. Um, you know, it's just, it's one of the things that you have to deal with when it comes to working with natural materials. And, you know, I've got, 15 going on 16 years of experience. I know people with 40, 50 years of experience that have the same problem. Um, you know, you, you get better and better at predicting, but we can't predict everything. Uh, and to be honest, it's actually one of the things that I like about natural materials. They're very humbling. You can't really force your will upon a stone. Um, it's it's going to set you in your place if it's not suited to do what you decide it needs to do. And I like that. As far as the stuff that I really enjoy... I really like working amber, uh, jade. Those two materials uh, in particular have a lot of uh, cultural history all around the world, and they were two of the materials uh, that I taught about in my APP class several years ago. I've also recently taken a liking to Botswana agate, which tends to have really nice tight bands and sometimes has really beautiful pastel peaches and pinks. I'm kind of a nerd for, for pastels and for really bright colors, stuff like chrysoprase um, and, and sort of what some people might consider to be gaudy combinations like chrysoprase and amethyst, the bright blue, green, and purple, um, pinks and purple, stuff like that. I just like having fun with rocks. I really like your color choices and the materials that you pick. Uh, personally, I mean, it's it's no secret. I have a very big soft spot for you and your company. Because I think it was two years ago. I think it was the year that you taught your class. You actually brought the raw material. I can't think of it. The wow, am I really drawing a blank like this? <laughs> yeah, I am. It's it's like the quartz with uh, black okay, tourmaline. Okay, yeah, the, the tourmaline included quartz. Yeah. Some people call it tourmaline. Yeah, there you go. Oh my goodness. Quartz. Yeah. yeah. So you you brought that. So it was actually, in my opinion, super rad because I, I it's no no joke. Like I'm kind of a I lovingly say a stone hippie so like you know i carry pieces in my pocket and things like that so it was nice to like connect with the piece and then i think it was like two months later i actually got the finished product and they're like my i i call them my wedding jewelry so anytime <laughs> that like we have a wedding or something those are the pieces that that's I wear. awesome were those but, the display um, weights yes they Excellent. were so and the funny part is is the reason why i bring it up is the uh the the stones that I can never pronounce. Uh, Tobias uh, Valone and I were standing in front of your booth, and he saw them, and he asked me. He was like, he turned around and he was like, "Did you see those?" I was like, "If you don't buy those right now, they're not going to be there in the next five minutes." And he's turned around and he was like, uh, "I was like, just buy them." And I, it always cracks me up because whenever I see him, I'm like, "That was a really good purchase," <laughs> you know. Like so, it uh, it always cracks me up to um to uh, think about those because those pieces are amazing. And that's actually one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is the ideas for your jewelry. Where does that come from? Where does it start from? Like, because they're so unique. And I mean, it, it seems like you almost take a lot of them from nature, like the honeycomb pieces that you have and things of that. So where does it go from concept to, you know, finished product? Sure. Um, so I have a background in 
design. And I'm always looking particularly at line, line quality, and light, reflections, shadow. And the overwhelming majority of the stuff that I've designed over the past, well, really, since I started making weights, plays really heavily on those concepts. Um, so the display weights, the pieces that you have, um, that's a really simple style. It's just a hook with, uh, you know, we will call them acorns. They're, they're really based on the diac, uh, the they're called spinning tops, their weight style from uh, Borneo that a lot of companies have reproduced just in plain brass over the years. And the idea behind that style was, you know, we see there's so many plugs out there and, and we get to see all these beautiful materials, but we just get to see a flat face of it. So how would our interaction with the material be if we could see that material in 360 degrees? Um, and that's where the idea of cutting the weights with delays at the bottom and making them set like giant upside down stone settings so that you could take these materials that had really vibrant color, really detail, three dimensional lines, bands, things like that, and see how that pattern, how that color progresses through the stone rather than just getting this sort of two dimensional flat representation of it. A lot of the other stuff is definitely pulled from nature. The honeycombs, obviously. Um, one of my personal favorites, Somnia, the poppy flower skeleton. I love I those. do too. And you know what's funny? It's one of my selling styles, things that I like with the things that tend to sell. Really pretty realistic, all things considered. It really pretty much does look like a, like a poppy skeleton, the internal structure once the skin of the seed pod dies away, hanging from a stem in your ear. Um, with stone settings at the back of the skeleton and at the front. That piece was inspired by an African Toreg piece, I believe. Um, I don't remember what it's called, but it's essentially a circular shape with uh, usually a diamond or triangular um, massive metal at the end. And I always really dug that piece because they solved a really interesting problem. And it was how to get something that's hanging from your ear to face forward with the detail part rather than wanting to to point down toward the floor um and so when i got to looking at the at the poppy flowers and the skeletons and I'm, I'm a flower nerd i carve a lot of flowers i take a lot of pictures of flowers just like flowers um it makes sense to do a piece i just push front of that flower and all of those gemstones and that really complex skeleton proud so that it was coming right up alongside the cheek alongside the edge of the face and really being a focal point everything starts as just scrawled drawings and sketchbooks and usually makes it through several iterations on paper um playing with shape playing with line um i make a lot of paper models i also make a lot of metal models um there's usually quite a few stages final a first prototype from a mold in the case of cast stuff that process has taken as little time as two weeks and as long as maybe a year and a half to get something um, totally ready to go. It's actually super, uh, at least to me, it's actually very surprising how fast or how slow the timeline can be because I know that you're probably like a super perfectionist in making sure that it is 100% like good to go, like I'm proud and I stand behind this. So I, I couldn't imagine like going through casting a whole thing, realizing there's like one millimeter bump and then having to redo the whole thing. But I, I, like you said, you know, it's, it, that's a whole nother monster that, you know, it seems like you find enjoy, like you enjoy quite a bit because it gives you the chance to like craft this piece from, you know, raw materials to have an amazing end product. Sure. Yeah. The, you know, you mentioned the, um, uh, the, the iterative process and the, and the perfection and that that's something that I've really tried to get much better about over the last couple of years in terms of not being such a perfectionist about really small details. Um, there are definitely details that I'm super adamant that have to be exactly the way I plan them. But more and more recently as I spend more time 
uh, in the woods, more time riding bikes, more time studying Buddhism, and generally just more time trying to be at peace with being alive and, and not being a workaholic, I become a lot more okay with the little things, the, the chance things that happen, um, you know, in the molding process, the casting process, you know, as a matter of fact, some of the best, <laughs> actually some of the best jade product that I've ever made had to do with just kind of jazzing it, going with the flow after a break in the piece, after a fracture, after something that had to do with the original design goes wrong and you just kind of have to go with it and fix it. Yeah, a good example of that, the most recent piece would be Spring, the multi-piece set of Jade Ear Flares that I did, uh, that I brought to Vegas in the last year, the year before. I think, yeah, I think um, it was, I want to say I think it was, it was last year. year. So the, the flower faces on those, they ended up being this, what I think is really beautiful um, multi-tiered so it's alternating there's six petals three of them are high three of them are low and it gives a really beautiful effect with the beads and everything that are involved and it was initially planned to be a more ornate face but I had one of the petals shear off um, how to explain this kind of parallel to the face horizontally so one of the six petals ended up half the height of the other five and when you're already, you know, 30, 40 hours into a certain facet of a project, it, it's a real difficult proposition to just say, okay, I'm going to start this over because it's not exactly what I planned. Um, I ended up mulling it over for a day and a half, and then the light bulb kind of went off, and I went for it and decided to carve that pedal down and level along with two other pedals to alternate high and low across the face. And I loved it. The customer loved it. And, you know, that project would have turned out completely differently if the nature and the physical characteristics of the material hadn't sort of jumped up and said, okay, this is how we're going to roll now. That's awesome. Like, I, I don't know. I just think, honestly, those little stories are what makes uh, – how do I put this? I think those little stories are honestly what makes the pieces amazing in my book. Like I, you go through your whole life and you have adventures and you have stories. And I mean if you're going to put so much love and care from it and from a maker standpoint as a client or someone who purchases it, I feel like having that extra little something special just means the absolute world. Yeah, that's very cool to hear. I, You know, every piece has a story. Um, and – Sometimes the customer is a part of that story directly. Sometimes they're a part of it indirectly. I always really enjoy conveying it, and it's always a lot of fun to work with people. And uh, although it can be a little bit aggravating at the time um, or sometimes just, like, super anxiety-inducing, having that back and forth with the customer and, and doing the problem-solving, um, usually at the end of the day, everybody really gain something from that i think it, the, the the whole process becomes an experience for everybody and, and that i really dig i do i do too and i and i know that i sound like i'm i'm fanboying over here over it but i i really appreciate the, like the amount of energy and time and like willingness to work with like clients and materials that like you and your company provide because there's not a ton of companies that do that and it really does make a difference especially from a uh, a consumer standpoint so I I wanted to go ahead and ask you this real quick too. The one piece that stands out to me that you have produced probably in the last like year to two years are the ghost <laughs> in the shell uh, yeah. pieces of jewelry. Where did that like concept come from? Because there there's such a and I'll include pictures of this in our show notes and. Um, your Instagram and everything so that people can look at all the jewelry. But uh, it's such an interesting concept. Did you draw like any ideas from any one particular thing or did it just start out as a sketch or because it's such a unique piece of jewelry? Those pieces started out as nothing but a sketch of just the outside line. So just from the top wearing surface down around those wide corners and down to the tip with no other details. And I ended up sitting <laughs> over the course of probably, it was more than a year, um, 
I kept revisiting that sketch with tracing paper and I would trace the initial shape a bunch of times on the tracing paper. And then I would sit there and do something different in each one. And so some of them ended up with, you know, loads of uh, inlays. Um, some of them were kind of uh, like a Mesoamerican inspired with um, some inlays that looked like little eagle feathers and things like that. Um, some of them were sort of super cyberpunk techno with some like circuit board looking details to the fronts. And the more I worked on it, what ended up happening was removing more and more elements. Can I take this away? Can I take this away? Does this still stand? I really became enamored with just the shape. And the goal became, how do I make this shape, which was largely inspired by a lot of mecha anime and and the, the actual film Ghost in the Shell, the original, along with a bunch of other stuff in that vein of just sort of futuristic, um, you know, cyber-based robotics kind of thing. How do I take this shape and make it as minimal as possible, but have it present as much impact as possible? And what I ended up settling on was the idea of, well, let's just keep the shape super minimal and really fuck with the light play. Um, And so that really... That's the whole crux of that style is you look at it and it looks completely different from every angle. And the light play on the different edges is always different. It reflects both the stuff that's around it as well as the stone that's inside of it from certain angles. And it was my first style. I don't know if it was the first style or not where the inlay was set at the back, which gives a really interesting aesthetic. It also protects the inlay um, in case they get dropped. And it, it ended up being a weird scenario where you had to insert the inlay through the lobe, which at first I really wasn't okay with. And then I just kind of decided, screw it. You know, if you're going to do something new, you might as well make it new and not be afraid to do it. And it, it became one of my better sellers. It's, I still love making it. I'm actually bringing a bunch to conference with a bunch of new doublet inlays and some other really exciting stuff. Um, that's been a favorite. Those pieces are absolute. I, I call them room <laughs> stoppers because as soon as as soon as you see them, you're like, oh my goodness. Um, I can't remember the exact stone, but I know that uh, either Adam or Shelby Richens has a pair, and every time I see Shelby wearing them, I think she has one of the first silver pairs. I think it's silver and turquoise. That's probably. I think that's it. I want to say that that's it. I'll probably look after the show, but yeah, I the first time I went to visit their studio, Amory, she had them on, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like because their studio is so oh, bright, yeah. and then you just see the light play right off of it. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's so good. It's so good. I can't can't even express it. <laughs> uh, so so going off exactly what you were just saying about bringing stuff to conference. So conference is very quickly uh, approaching. I know yeah. that I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the <laughs> conference lament from makers. But uh, do you have any uh, any things that you want to share before a conference or uh, any future plans of things that you may or may not be bringing with you sure. for our listeners? So, you don't have to share all the, the secrets. <laughs> the new style that I'm debuting this year, um, Topo is a sort of river valley topographical map themed style, which is kind of a weird theme for body jewelry, but that's sort of where I was headed was let's, let's play with some new subject matter. Um, a really interesting aesthetic with the, again, the stone set in the back, like ghosts. And I'm having a lot of fun with those, particularly because the style is meant to be pseudo realistic. So when you're looking at it from the front, it looks like uh, elevation lines on a map. So it's tiered. It starts out high and goes lower and lower and lower and then drops down to the inlay in the center, which is set from the back and domed very high. So it gives a lot of depth. And when there is a watercolored stone in it, it legitimately looks like a little cutout of a map with real water. It's really pretty fantastic, guys. 
I don't often surprise myself, but I've been staring at this thing and going, this is where it's at. This is pretty good. So I'm excited with that. And then along with that come, and this is something that I know you talked about at length with uh, the wonderful maker, Alan from Origins, is the concept of doublets or stone laminations. And I am going to be bringing a whole bunch of doublets uh, in all of the styles, including Topo and the the next newest one, Soma, the big spools as well. And those are fun because all of the doublets that I make are pretty big. Those are quite large inlays, particularly Iona, which is a, the inlay itself is an inch and a half across. I have some doublets in that as well. And him and I are actually sharing a booth this year, so this stuff is going to look real nice together. I actually went to uh, go up to Asheville yesterday for uh, a show, and I got to see all of the pieces that are uh, that he did a collab uh, with some other mm-hmm. artists with. Every time I go to that shop, it <laughs> kills me because I'm like, I got to leave my wallet in the car because otherwise I'm going to get myself in trouble every time I come here. So I that is going to probably be the most gorgeous booth, in my opinion, because... <laughs> Your stuff and Alan's stuff is great. I, I have a question, though, and this is just me asking because I'm not a jewelry maker sure. in any which way, shape, or form. With your pieces being larger uh, than a lot of the settings that mm-hmm. Alan has for his doublets, how did you go about securing the doublet? Because why don't you just explain to our listeners that didn't listen to the episode with Alan what so a doublet actually a, is? A doublet is actually a pretty old school thing in the lapidary world. And the the first uses for doublets were to actually make really fragile stones um, like opal and amylite more rigid and suitable for wearing in jewelry in rings and in places that are more high impact because both of those materials are extremely fragile. And a traditional doublet is usually a hard backer material and a thin layer of precious material. Sometimes they also have a glass or quartz cap that would be called a triplet. So the term just refers to how many layers. For a lot of my doublets, I am playing with the the concept, the idea of a doublet in reverse and using two rigid materials, like, for example, quartz and lapis, but putting the lapis on the back and carving it so thin you can see through it uh, to experiment with making materials that are always opaque. Lapis is never translucent. Um, Translucent. So if you cut it thin enough, and I'm talking like, you know, uh, one, two, three-tenths of a millimeter thick, you can see through it. It glows in the light, which is really beautiful. So for my doublets, it's a pretty intensive process because they're much larger. And since you can see a lot more material, you have to be quite precise with the flatness of the two faces that are mated together and the polish of the two faces that are mated together. So it starts with selecting the two materials I'm going to use. So today I did, for example, some rutilated quartz over a black jade, rutilated quartz on top, black jade on the back to provide contrast and make those needles glow. Um, Cut the two materials to the approximate thickness I need them and fully square up, flatten, and polished both faces that are going to be mated together. And then I use a, a process that involves uh, extremely strong water-clear epoxy and a heat lamp to cure the epoxy, and then the stone gets carved like any regular stone. So once the, once the lamination is done, once the two layers or three layers are secured together, it can then be carved and polished like any other stone. Gotcha. Yeah, I was confused on how that would work because our uh, origins or Alan, however you want to say it, his jewelry is usually like cabs and your pieces are usually much larger. So I just wanted to find out about that because I'm I'm always interested in the technical aspect mm-hmm. on like how things are done and how things work. So it's actually really nice to be able to ask you. And and you've always been very open with explaining how things work. So I, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners probably had a question similar to that as soon as they heard it, but I'll save you a little bit of time at conference so you don't have to cool. repeat it 10,000 um, times. Real quick, I, I do want to mention that in the past I've been quite vocal about um, not using adhesives in fine jewelry and in body jewelry. And so, it, you know, it could be considered a bit hypocritical to be using adhesives 
for the sake of doublets, but there's a difference that I think is important. I think there's a difference between creating a stone which you then set via hardware, so there's no glue used to actually really hold the whole project together. The stone is not glued into a metal setting um, versus gluing a stone onto the face of a wood plug or into just a seat um, in a piece of metal where the glue is fundamentally acting as the force that's holding the project together. Um, Just in case anybody, while I was describing the process of a doublet, was remembering in their head all the times I've been an asshole on the internet about glue. I'm much less of an asshole nowadays. (laughs) To be honest, we're... (laughs) We've... I'm not going to lie about it either. Like I've calmed down in my, my older age, but I'm, I've definitely been a prick more times than I care to remember, but you know, that's how it works. But, uh, I, I do appreciate and find it actually really awesome that you address that so that you don't have to answer that question (laughs) at conference. Cause I'm sure that someone would probably ask you that too. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I do, I do have to agree with you from, from a consumer standpoint, because that's the only opinion I can give. Like there is definitely a radical difference between, using glue to hold your stuff together and using glue I, i'm just using glue as a general term to to help create the piece itself like plastination sure. or or any of those things so yeah so i'm i'm all on i'm all on team Woo. team one tribe for that one so all right so uh yeah i'm i'm super glad that you came on to talk about this stuff and actually i have a question okay. from a listener that i would love to ask you uh because once again uh, you have a very well-established body jewelry company, and I think you're the perfect person to ask for this. So uh, this we got in from a listener, and I'm going to read what they sent us and then give you a chance to respond to it. So I recently got my ears to a size that allows me to wear more weights and elaborate designs. Even though this is great, I've discovered that a lot of jewelry has gone from 20 to $50 Ouch. to over 100 or more. Why is this? Is there anywhere you would recommend to buy from? I am going to weigh into this after you have a chance, but uh, as a person who makes higher-end jewelry and very elaborate pieces, why don't you kind of okay. give us your two cents um, on that? This is, this is a really multifaceted – it's kind of a loaded question um, with a multifaceted answer, so I'll just touch on a couple of different things. First, I really just think it needs to be made clear that the price of most things is artificially low. Um, you know, we're – we're we're kind of running this capitalism game expecting exponential growth in a system of finite resources and that's you know that doesn't work we you know the the point is to deflate costs as much as possible to maximize profitability and you know that works great if you're a big corporation it's not really the name of the game when you're um a smaller company and particularly an independent maker so I can only really speak for myself. I can give some indication of why the things that I make cost what they do. Um, So I'll start with the time that I don't get paid for. So anytime I'm answering emails, corresponding with customers, going back and forth, problem solving, um, spending hours looking for a piece of material, trying to troubleshoot the fact that I'm breaking a ton of material helping other makers get better at what they do, teaching a class at APP that took 100 hours plus to prepare. All of those things are acts of business. Those are things that are a part of my everyday business that I do, some because they're necessary, some because I love them, but all are technically unpaid, which means the limited amount of time that I have to put my hands on material and create things has to pay my salary, the salary of my administrative employee, all the bills associated with the business. That means that the time that I do spend with my hands on materials has to be valuable enough to cover all of those expenses. Um, Making things is inherently not cheap. So at the moment, everything that I make is made... um, in Richmond, Virginia, my casting is done up in Rhode Island. Um, I have had a workshop in Indonesia in the past. Um, I sometimes collaborate with other folks who make things overseas. I don't have a problem with that at all. Everybody's got their thing. But I'm paying you know, myself a, a living U.S. wage to support my family. I have a son. We have a house. 
Um, and then we have, you know, my administrator's wages and the material costs and the bills, all of that stuff. It really adds up. Something that I've been really vocal about, and this applies to, to all makers, is that, you know, you really have to be careful about how much time you spend working on things. And you have to know how much time is going into administrative work versus the production work. And you need to be able to have some indication of what amount of money that you need to make divided by the amount of time you have to make it works out to be. That's really important. Um, materials, just general. So I can actually give some real world examples from this most recent style that I've made. Um, I'm just going to talk about some finances and put them out there. Um, so Topo, the style that I'm releasing at APP. Um, I've been working on the style since late last year, um, just after APP last year. Um, so I've just got the initial prototypes, which are the first metal pieces cast from what was, is, should be the final mold. My cost to get those two sets of jewelry in my hands was over $2,000. So that's, that's not including the actual design time. So none of the time that I spent sitting and working on that style, doing the illustrations, um, you know, doing the measurements, none of that stuff is included. $2,000 doesn't seem like a lot of money to make back, but you have to keep in mind that every set of jewelry that I make has material and labor invested in it, even if that jewelry costs three or $400, it's going to take quite a few pairs of that one thing in order to pay off $2,000 before the project even gets profitable at all. Um, you know, some of the stuff that I've made, some of these styles, there's only 20 or 30. Um, I think I only have one or two styles that I've sold more than a hundred of since I started casting, which was five years ago. So when you have small production runs and you have a lot of time invested in labor and materials, the costs add up. And in order to be able to not just make the money, you know, to pay for that thing, but to be able to have the lights on to come back and have materials to do it again tomorrow means that there's got to be some kind of markup above the actual cost of the thing. And all of that stuff together compounds to a number that, in some cases, I absolutely admit is, is pretty high. But at the end of the day, my goal is to make things that honor the time and energy that people spent to fundamentally change their bodies. And I think that that's hard to put a price on. I and I'm and I'm not saying this just because I agree with you on all levels of that. I think one of the things that a lot of people take for granted for in this day and age, especially in like American society, is like it's cheaper on Amazon or it's cheaper at like, you know, you know, any sure. any of the big box re, like retail stores or anything like that. And it it's different. Here comes the the Will Von Dad hat. When I was a kid, my grandfather always told me how important it is is to support local businesses and so to support smaller businesses because those are the those are the people that always keep a community alive. The big box retailers don't care if they come or they go. But the person who has been hand making, you know, wooden signs in your town Although he may be a little more expensive, he or she may be a little more expensive than your average person, you're keeping a member of your community together and, and they are super valuable and they're the ones that are going to keep your community stronger and alive longer. So I feel like it's very important for people not to undersell or undervalue the products that they make because ultimately when oh, you absolutely. do that, it hurts yeah. everyone. Um, I totally agree with, with your example and I'd like to add also that Dealing with makers, creators, small businesses, etc., in the overwhelming majority of cases leads to an accountability and traceability for labor, for materials that in many cases is absent when you're buying mass-produced products. And 
that's important because a lot of the, the big box stores and, and, you know, going back to financial religion of uh, capitalism with the goal being to, you know, reduce costs to maximize profitability. One of the key things that happens is that people and place become devalued because those are the two easiest costs to control is how much you pay somebody and how much you can exploit a natural resource, um, you know, in order to maximize the profitability. And I've found over the years, because I tend to be the kind of person that buys something once and buys what I consider to be the best of that thing, that, you know, I'm the when same you way. do that, you are not buying into this system of sort of throwaway culture and and just blind purchasing. This is something that my wife has to deal with in the fashion industry. And there's a concept called fast fashion, um, which basically, you know, is, is based on the idea that fashion is seasonal and things are coming and going so fast that um, prices are being slammed way down, labor costs are being slammed way down, and things are just being worn and thrown away. And it's super wasteful. There's a there's a counter movement to that called essentially the slow movement, slow fashion, and you hear the term slow food as well. And I very much subscribe to the idea that that one tribe is a slow business. Uh, you know, we I work at people speed. I have one person. I have one set of hands. They may be you know bleeding periodically, but I'm going to get the thing that you need done once the thing that the person before you needs is done. So everybody gets a certain amount of attention. Um, and there's, there's a relationship and accountability there. I think that's really important. I, I do have to say, and I'm just going to interrupt you for a second here. When you buy from smaller businesses and smaller companies, uh, you establish a relationship with them very quickly. And I, case in point, uh, when, uh, I think it was after a like a snowstorm. I had the museum pieces in my ears, and I dropped one, uh, and it had the smallest little itty bitty tiny chip. And I made a I made a Facebook post about how heartbroken I was that I dropped one. And I honestly feel like in five minutes, and I didn't tag you at all. You were like, "Let me know if you want to send them <laughs> in, and I'll fix them." And I was just like, "Holy crap!" Like you know, like this is me drinking at like you know, 11 o'clock at night. I didn't expect anything like that. And, and it's those types of things, like, you know, big box stores are not going to be like, Hey, why don't you send that back to me? And oh, I'll fix no, it of course not. That, that doesn't happen, you know? And it, and it's, and it's not like I'm a very well-known, super famous piercer person analogy or like any of those things. It, it's just you standing behind the things that you do and making sure that people are happy. And that's, that's the, that's the reason why, you know, like every Saturday I buy mushrooms from this cranky old man at the farmer's market because I know like he appreciates it even though he's very cranky. So it, it's just one of those things. I, I've i said it once and I'll say it again and, and this is one of the reasons why I do this podcast is because it gives me a platform to say these things because I feel people need to hear them. It is super important to shop local when possible. And then in addition to that, making sure that you keep business within your community, whether that be the Pearson community, your local community, or, or you know uh, any sort of thing that you belong to. Because if you don't, you can lose them. And we can, we can lose smaller jewelry companies. Like we, we could lose one tribe or, you know, it, let's say no one wants to buy glass anymore. We could lose Gorilla Glass. Like, I mean, those are – who wants to be in a community where we let things like That's that happen? That's pretty depressing. I definitely don't. Yeah, it, it really is. And I and I just want to, you know, th there's always going to be a cheaper alternative. But the difference is, is that if you go with that, you're probably going to have to buy it like three to four times or there's going to be issues or problems with it. Just support local. They'll take care of you as much as you take care of them. And I, I really think that that's something that a yeah, lot of people I need agree. to hear. On that note. Can I plug a couple of makers? Oh, yeah. Go for it. Fantastic. Um, sharing a booth with Alan Origins. Uh, fantastic threaded ends. Really beautiful, minimalist slash highly textured stuff. Precious metals and stones. Um, Mike Knight. Other jewelry. Other couture. Um, just absolutely 
bonkers pave stuff beautiful gold faceted stones um andy with south shore dormants if you're in the uk or if you need wood plugs go to andy if you need delrin teflon weird stuff go to andy he loves it the folks at ritual remains are doing some really really cool weights and earrings right now really dimensional forest flower fungi themed um beautiful beautiful stuff support these people they're part of your piercer community your body dormant community small makers innovators these people deserve your business yeah and they are super responsive too i i speak to mike almost on a daily basis and one of the things that I, I know he's a sponsor and I can be like, yeah, he's a sponsor, blah, blah, blah. That's, that's not the point. <laughs> the, the big thing is that Mike actually wants to share information and that's the reason why I choose him to be one of our sponsors for the show because if you had a question on how to make something or how this setting works or how to get started with this or that, he will openly help you out. And teach you how to do it because he thinks his way, at least he's expressed in the past, is if I teach you something today, it could be like a year later and you could teach me something that I don't know. So oh, yeah. The, I love that exchange. Yeah. So the community becomes stronger and stronger. So don't don't be afraid to reach out to ask questions about people. Obviously, I mean – no one's ever going to share all of their secrets. I want to be very clear on that. I mean, there's still embalming tricks that I don't tell anybody, even though I'm not doing it. <laughs> but like, you know, you're not going to learn everything, but people will help you. And and don't be afraid to talk to people, especially at conference. That's that's a thing that I'd like to you know point out. I always joke and say I bring uh, I bring drinking money to conference, but it's not for me to buy drinks. It's me to buy drinks for other people so that I can pick their <laughs> brains. So that's always an option too. I like that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking time to come on and talk to us and everything, Jared. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you, where they can see your jewelry and all that other fun stuff? Uh, online store is OneTribe, O-N-E-T-R-I-B-E dot N-U. Uh, Instagram for eye candy and process at One Tribe Jewelry. You can find me on Facebook. I'm in a bunch of groups. Feel free to say hi. Flag me down at conference if you have questions about organics, body jewelry, history, materials, anything like that. I like to talk. So let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I can vouch. He, if as long as you will talk, he will talk back at you because I got <laughs> stuck in a conversational loop uh, a year or two ago, which was one of my favorite things. But thank you so much, Jared. I won't be seeing you at conference this year but maybe I'll see you uh, at the next year. But uh, we actually live close enough, so next time I have to pass through your hometown, I may stop in and say hey. Yes, please do. I'd love to see you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I have to say, this may be one of my favorite episodes of the podcast. Jared is such a fountain of knowledge and truly is willing to discuss many different things. One thing that made me sad... I forgot to discuss lithic coin products. These are small coins or slices of stone that are placed into plastic cases. They're amazing, and they're cut so thin that light can shine through most of them. They're perfect to have your own small stone collection. Now, as I've said before, I won't be attending this conference due to little baby Von Doom. But for those that are attending, you should go and visit Alan and Jared's booth at conference. I will warn you now, their pieces go very, very fast. So if you have time to visit them first thing, I would do so. Also, don't be afraid to discuss potential projects with them if you're looking for certain materials. They will definitely tell you if it's possible to do, and if it wouldn't work, just exactly why. Also, make sure you go back to listen to our conference survival guide to learn some hints and some tricks and about all the things to expect at conference. Thank you so much to Jared. I've included links for his company in this week's show notes. Please take some time to follow these accounts, or better yet, pick up a piece of jewelry to add to your collection. In other news, I want to thank all you wonderful folks for your review on iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as listening for every episode. I also wanted to thank all of my Patreon subscribers for your support. If you believe in what we do here and would like to support the podcast in any way, please consider being a patron are sharing the podcast on social media. I would like to thank our ongoing sponsors of the podcast. 
Other Couture Jewelry's owner, Mike Knight, has been preparing his booth for conference and just expanded his staff yet again to handle all the incoming orders. I've seen the pieces going to conference and can tell you they are amazing. Definitely set some funds aside for them. If you're in a professional studio and would like to get a copy of their catalog, please visit our sponsors page for a link on how to contact other Couture Jewelry. Sponsor Goldheart Woodworks has been busier than ever getting ready for conference. Derek and Lars have been busy making limited edition displays for this. These pink maple displays look great with various materials on them. If you plan on visiting the expo floor this year, I would beeline straight to their booth so you don't miss out on these pieces. If you can attend conference or would like to see their entire catalog of displays, please visit them at their new website, bodyjewelrydisplays.com. Our final sponsor for this week's episode is from our California family. Adam and Shelby Richens have been crushing it in Santa Cruz at the beautiful Amory Body Arts. This is the only studio I trust in Monterey Bay to send clients and listeners to. For all of your piercing and jewelry needs, make sure to visit our friends at Amory. You can find more information about these companies under the Sponsors tab on our website, realtalkapiercingpodcast.com. To ask questions, suggest topics, or get more info about your host or today's guest, please visit us at realtalkpiercingpodcast.com. If you have a moment and enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast platform. The views and opinions expressed by the host and guest are their own and do not represent the official position of the Association of Professional Piercers or their places of employment. Music by Broke for Free.